Hello and welcome to episode 30 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. So this is the first of the weekly episodes and I'm really excited about today's episode. I couldn't quite believe it when this interview came through. Uh, It is with, you probably already know because you've clicked on the episode, it's with Jack Cassidy, um, absolutely legendary bass player from Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. And he's done loads of other stuff, played with Jimi Hendrix and played Woodstock Festival. And oh my goodness, I just can't believe how much cool stuff he's done. (laughs) Um, And he's such a nice chap as well. He's uh, really, really intelligent, super funny. And he talks us through uh, all of his bass rig. He talks us through recording at RCA in Hollywood and then onto Wally Hyder Studios. Talks about growing up in and playing in the club scene in Washington as a guitarist and uh, his musical tastes as a uh, sort of a young a young man through his teens um, and how that went on to influence how he wrote with Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. Just a really interesting interview and he was such a great guy. So I really hope you enjoy this. Um, I'd also thought I'd introduce every episode now because I send off stems every Tuesday, these isolated drum stems. So I thought I'd tell you what the stems are each week, seeing as they go out on the same day, I may as well start tying all this together. So the stems this Tuesday are going to be I'm Only Sleeping from Revolver, which I know is not necessarily known for its drum parts, but that's a... I'm going to get through all of them, and what am I now? This is number 48, I think I've done of these. Um, And it's just a really, really nice chilled out drum groove, to be honest. And it's one, if you're using these stems for writing or sampling at all, this is one that definitely will work for that. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, And that's that. So I I will just drop straight into the episode. There is uh, not really a formal introduction because we chatted for quite a while before I started recording. So it sort of just works its way straight in. And then um, there was a few interruptions as we went through the conversation, just because it was quite a relaxed conversation. So I've edited them, edited them out. Uh, but if the audio jumps around, it, I mean, it shouldn't jump around noticeably. But if it, if the conversation sort of moves a little bit, that's you'll you'll know that that's why I've cut out a big period of uh, of a pause. <laughs> you know, there's there's one particular bit, maybe two thirds of the way through this episode, where Jack finds a photo for me on his phone, and it takes it about ten minutes to find the picture. And it was worth it because it was a really cool picture. Um, so I've edited out the the time when he was looking for the picture, but then suddenly the audio just says, "Okay, so here we go," <laughs> and I go, "Oh wow!" and that's when he shows me the picture. <laughs> so anyway, you'll get the idea. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. It's Jack Cassidy. First of all, uh, I just want to say, we've, I know we've been chatting for, for 15 minutes already, but I, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I do really appreciate it. Well, this is fun. This is great. And uh and all I can say, I'm just thankful that all the equipment's working right now. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime the the picture pops up, you say, and there's the sound, can you hear me? Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I can hear you. Glory be. Fortunately, I haven't had it's, any uh, recording sort of mishaps yet. But Well, well you know, it's, it's computers, anything can happen. Yeah. Not to mention Wi-Fi and all of that. So. Um, I just wanted to start by asking about... Um, about Al Schmidt, which I know is a bit of a, a downer to begin on, 
Um, obviously, right. we, we lost him this week. Well, actually, it's the it really is the opposite. I just posted a, a picture, Al and I, uh, when um, we with the Jefferson Airplane uh, received a, a Grammy in 2016 for a lifetime achievement, and so I was able to go to that, uh, and I saw Al, and of course, Al and I are old friends, and and as you know, he he worked in with us on, on many uh, Jefferson Airplane Hot Tune albums. And um, and Al and I, uh, we sort of, we had reconnected through Facebook a bunch, you know, but um, after we, we got a chance to talk and hang out a little bit there here in Los Angeles, then we, then we really kept up uh, much more of a, uh, a contact than we had in years. But, of course, um, Al is such a huge influence in making musicians comfortable in a studio. You never thought that he was on the other side or you know he was he was so aware and, and in tune of of what you were trying to get in the studio and offered the kind of uh, advice and information that allowed you to 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 get that in the studio because a, lo- a lot of times in that early recording days, the only time you got in the studio was to make an album that was put out and then you went out on the road. So the the studios become accessible to everybody from from recording on your iPhone now to, uh, to uh, being able to buy uh, high-quality equipment for, for a reasonable amount of money and make good quality recordings. But, you know, when I s- started recording with a record company, RCA, and Al Schmidt was involved, the only way you, you got into that high-end machinery, which was all tube-driven, and they, they get your access to all of that equipment was, was to get a record contract so you had access to it all. Uh, so it was a different world then. Although... My father, being an audiophile, he was he was a, a dentist and came from a, a, a doctor family. I I come from a, a physician and dentist family. Um, he was an audiophile in in the fifties, uh, uh, early fifties, and and I had access to recording tape recorders and whatnot. And I I, I carried around a Wallenzak tape recorder and <laughs> and made a lot of recordings early on. I was familiar with it, but but of course, being in a real studio at that time, what was called a real studio, you had access to the top of the line equipment and and uh, uh, and, and worked in that environment. And Al was just, I think I contact I, I learned more about Al in the la- last five years than I had ever known him before. Uh, and um, we had a lot of contact over Facebook and. And and uh, his uh, his humanness and his uh, desire to do good in the world. He's he's just a kind, gentle human being. Uh, the kinds of things he would post and taking care of animals and seeing flowers and 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 looking at nature and and being in in awe of all the beautiful things the world has to offer. That was Al. And of course, all the artists he worked with, you know, um, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm sure they all say what a gentleman he was to work with, and what an inspiration. Because it, there's so many times when you work 
you know, you're a young artist. If you're with a record company, a lot of times they'll take a producer and put you in with a producer, and there, there, there can be friction. You're trying to get at something that you've done maybe in person, uh, and you got a certain sound, and you get into the studio trying to capture that. What Al teaches you that the studio is another world altogether, and that if you if you shake hands with that world and get into that world, you're going to find some things that that you hadn't discovered before that will only enhance your your musical direction uh, and the and the and the attempt to implement that to get what you have in your mind and your thought and your heart out there and hear it back and you say, yeah, that's it. That's where I was headed. While we're, we're on this topic, it's obviously the, the the Jefferson Airplane albums will have they had a a, a particular sound to them, and it and it's, it strikes me as not necessarily just a group going in and recording uh, recording songs, sort of a rabbit in the headlights style. Um, well, that that's how the first album was. But, but um, the first album with Sydney Tolley, that that was our 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 lady singer. We we basically we recorded that on a three track, we had two tracks to record and one to bounce, and we went in there as a band and recorded in four days. Basically, wow. we played what we played at at shows. Mm-hmm. The second album, when Grace after Grace had joined us, the following year in nineteen uh, the, the first album in nineteen sixty six sixty seven, we went into the studio, and that was the first one where we where where we used the studio and and created a sound and environment in the studio itself, um, where we had songs that were prepared but not fully arranged. We had songs, uh, bits and pieces of some songs, and we we finished them and arranged them in the studio, and and that was the, really the beginning of working in the studio and being okay with that, <laughs> uh, you know, and and finding a sound that. The, then it was kind of the opposite. Then we went went out to uh, to perform those songs and create that sound on stage. Where before it had been all about creating the sound that was on stage in the studio. That's interesting. It's a uh, it's almost an approach that that people take now. You know, that's what bands are, are do now. They they create something in the studio and then struggle to recreate it live. Yeah. Now, of course. That that's a double-edged sword. I mean, <laughs> sometimes you 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 work in your bedroom, whispering your songs in like this, and all of a sudden you're in front of uh, uh, a mass of people, and and you haven't learned how to project. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, the singers like Aretha Franklin worked for years before you you got worked projecting her voice. You know, pre- singers. That that worked for long times in a in a club scene was usually how it worked, and then you finally got an opportunity to record. Had put a lot of miles on learning how to project their voice and whatnot. So uh, there's uh, there's all of that going on at, at the same time too. Well, you kind of had the best of both worlds. That it was, you know, you had all the live experience, and then got to create in the studio, but also were experienced enough to to then understand how to to project that in to use a different project in a different context but how to how to then um transfer that to live um right so we're thinking we're, we're talking about rca uh in hollywood is that that's correct the studio that's right 
right down the street from where I am. Sunset and <laughs> Ivor was the R RCA building. Around the, around the corner was the Capitol building, the big round one. Uh, and uh, we lived up in San Francisco there, so we we take a we'd rent a house down here or something like that, you know, for a, a period of time and uh, and fly down uh, from San Francisco. How in the when you were treating the the studio as more of an instrument how did you do you remember much about how the day-to-day -day of those sessions went and um, what was the general yeah, structure yeah, yeah yeah pretty much well the the structure is you you'd work in you know, on your material with and uh, with with our with our different producers there but as as we as we gained some traction with surrealistic pillar that had white rabbit and somebody love or or our contract came up for renegotiation, and we were able to then get really almost full control in the studio after that. And um, that was a big move. And a lot of bands were starting to do that then, and it, was, it had not been done before. A group of people, usually so many, the, 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 the lead singers or whatever would use the pro studio guys to cut the records and then a band was put together and you went out on the road and, and reproduced that. Here you had a band, for better or worse, everybody was going to play their own, own instrument. Nobody was going to fill, fill in for them. So um, you had bands across both in England and here uh, that were starting to come up and be recorded uh, as full bands as they were. And of course, you know, the Who, the Rolling Stones and and um, uh, Jimi Hendrix coming from the uh, kind of reinventing himself in England and coming back over. But you had bands that were starting to get control in the studio. And once you had a record and you got some traction on that record and it came time to, to renegotiate everybody, it was, why shouldn't we be in control of this? I don't want to be this, I don't want to sound like this producer who, who's done. 20 different vocalists in a row with his sound I'm 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 I want my I want to develop my own sound and you know you may not even know what that is <laughs> a concept but you know you know from playing with the with your your bandmates that uh that you there are there are moments where you gel and you have this sound you want to capture that sound that's unique of those people coming together so that's what that's what we were after and did you did you enter the studio with, with sort of songs that you'd loosely pieced together, or were you were you writing? Yeah, I mean, uh, we well after we had more time. I mean, the the earlier two first two albums, the clock was ticking. You know, you know, the yeah. pain, and uh, and when we we negotiate, we did after bidding of Baxter's, maybe to our folly, we we then spent we were on tour and recording. So that's usually what happened. You had to keep your you had to keep your your rent paid, you know, and you had to go out and play. So that that third album, I think, the like you say, the first album was four days. The second album was maybe two weeks, Surrealistic Pillow. I think the third third album was, was over two months, but but not all of that was in the studio. But we were able to have things like a lockout on the studio, 24-hour time session set up so that we could work one or two weeks at a time uh, uh, and, 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 and enjoy the full environment of the studio. Were you requesting... You got a chance to create... The idea was to create in that studio, feel comfortable in there, and to write songs and put them together in the studio. 
Okay, with with no time pressure. Exactly. And how? Somewhat. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Later, later on, you know, they're, you know, we spent that much in the studio. Oh my god. <laughs> so, were you recording as as you go? Was there, you know, was there a, a, a tape op sat in the control room recording jams, or how was how was the writing process? Well, working? we didn't. I mean, we went in there with songs. We're, we we were a song oriented band. We had three singers in the band, uh, four singers in the band. With everybody had their uh, 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 four different writers, and we came in, um, you know, to work on the songs, you know, and the bits and pieces of the songs. Out of that, a couple of jams happened, and or that got left on the album, and and you do some some uh, some uh, experimental stuff. But you know, we went in there to, to make songs. Now they. What was happening is they weren't in the format of a three-minute song, uh, necessarily with a catchy little hook and then and, you know, and, uh, et cetera. So Marty had his approach to to his songs, and and and, and uh, Grace had her her approach, and Paul Cantor, and of course you are me. And um, I I I as a bass player that that didn't play just just rhythm on a bass. I, I enjoyed the different approaches that I could uh, that I could test my my uh, test my avenues of experimentation with, you know. Uh, and so I, I always liked a, a lot of movement to the bass lines and I, I like to move up and down the leg and, and experiment with Working off the vocal melodies, but still trying to keep a hook in there and try and, and trying to keep the the low end drive going all the time. So, um, I really enjoyed that period of time with recording. Was there a, a conversation within the band about the bass's role? Uh, or you know, nobody ever nobody ever told anybody else what to play. There wasn't you play this hook or you play this repetitive lick or you play this. It really wasn't that way. Everybody gelled to try to work together to, to, to make it, it happen. But everybody was responsible for their own music. So uh, uh, that's what was unique about our band, you know, and some of the and all the other bands in San Francisco too, with the Grateful Dead and the Quicksilver Messenger Service, all all those early early bands out of San Francisco. Uh, they were. Uh, it was a lot less rigid in the formats of the songs. You know, uh, there weren't a lot of top forty hits out of all of that. But at the same time, this was the beginning of all night FM radio that would play a long cut. You know, um, uh, I was uh, fortunate to play a, a blues uh, voodoo job with Jimi Hendrix, a fifteen minute cut. And uh, uh, Mitch Mitchell was, became a good buddy of mine, and and so did uh, so did Jimmy. And we, when that happened, th- those that cut was played not on AM Top Forty format radio, but it was played at night from midnight to six in the morning with DJs that played like you would play jazz stations. You know, they would play lo- long cuts of of the what was then the, the new music, and so you. As you wrote your music, you had a place for that music to be played. But at the end of the day, playing in person and playing in front of people, it was, it was always where the, the rubber met the road. 
how much uh so i'm still sort of thinking about the the studio side of things how much uh control did you take over i mean let's say bass sound particularly because you've got a very distinctive sound Yes, I did take control of my sound. Everybody took control. I mean, you had a sound you were developing. And don't forget, as young musicians, every time you came back in the studio, which was usually about once a year, you discovered new stuff in person playing. You know, you'd experimented with sound and all of that. You came in and worked with the sound. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I took control of the sound in the studio. Um, and, and we, we, everybody worked with their own sound and trying, trying to get it. At the same time, there was lots I, I learned from uh, Al Schmidt, uh, 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 the Versatone amplifier, this little, let's see if I can see. See those amplifiers right uh, there? Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> those amplifiers, I discovered the Versatone. Bob Hall made those Versatones at Burbank. And they were basically a 35-watt hi-fi amplifier. And he made it for his wife who played stand-up bass as a sound, some sound reinforcement. Uh, uh, and he developed that amplifier in a really unique st- style with a, a, dual, a dual amplifier section, two tubes on one for the low end, two tubes for the high end, all going mono through, through a speaker. And it just has a golden tone on it. And... When I was when we were using stuff that in the studio that was that the engineers thought was just too loud for that format and didn't record well, we liked a lot of times what we found out was it was it was it was too loud for the microphones there. Uh, uh, in the bass end, I'd use larger cone speakers, 15-inch speakers and whatnot. But uh, one of the second engineers took me into the studio next door where Carol Kay was recording. And, um, and later on, we, be- we became pretty good friends uh, with, uh, with Carol. But in any case, she was using this first tone, and sh- she plays a whole different style than I do, plays with a pick, whatnot. But, but the amplifier, the microphone loved that amplifier. And in a, a low volume, about 10 o'clock, it just, for me, I started using a, a semi-hollow body guild bass guitar that, that I uh, uh, rebuilt the electronics with, with Owsley Stanley, mm-hmm. the first one. And that's the one you see at Woodstock that I'm using. It's got a bunch of carvings all over it and everything and uh, to enhance the fidelity of that. But, but when I put that, micro, that guitar, the bass guitar, through that little Versatone amp, I just got the sweetest sound in the world. So I went out to Burbank, and I asked, uh, and, and I went to a shop, and he was making these amplifiers in the garage. You know, it was just fantastic. So anyway, he was here's a quite there's a great story with this. I fell in love with the amplifier because I found out that when I I bought one, I brought it in the studio, and you talk about experimenting in the studio, and I'd work with it off and on, you know, and uh, maybe I'll go into one of the unused studio rooms and play around with it. And what <laughs> I found out was that with an acoustic, semi-hollow body acoustic instrument, bass guitar, when I cranked that amplifier up, it started to growl really nicely. And a lot of amplifiers on the bass end, it'll kind of get a buzz zone when you, when you, when you overdrive it, but but it isn't necessarily a pleasant sound. This amplifier 
just brought out all the overtones, one, three, five, seven, right in a row, really nice and crystal clear. When I cranked that up to about 11 or 12, I could sustain with it, but it was a really nice sustained sound. And you'll hear that sound on uh, Crown of Creation. You'll hear that, that sound start to come into my playing. And what we did, I, we put on, on a chair, and, uh, and there's some pictures of this you can find on oh, really? Facebook. It shows oh, you. Yeah. Just look for Jack Cassidy in the studio with a first tone or something. There's a couple out there that shows me in the studio with a first tone on a chair. And I would just use a white cord. One half would go into the, the versatone, another half would go into my regular rig, you know, which would, they had, you know, two 15s in it. But I could, in the studio, I started taking that and putting it on a second track. Now, along with this, with the development of more tracks available in the studio that allowed for more overdubbing but more multi-tracking and, and, uh, and isolating of different instruments, but also different sounds to one instrument. So I would have one track for the basic bass sound. It was Mike. I'd go through a, a preamp, a tube preamp, nice warm tube preamp in the studio itself so they would have a direct preamp sound. And then another track was used later on for that versatone sound where I could crank that up and maybe we put baffles around it so it wouldn't leak into something else, but I could crank that up and get that, that drive going along with that low end. And then I could mix, mix the balance of sounds together with that. And uh, today, of course, there's many more uh, much more ability to do that but we when we did the surrealistic pillow album in 1967 we moved to a four track that was the famous four track that basically everybody's using and Beatles recorded their Sgt. Pepper on all, all, everybody's using the four track but that opened things up a whole lot from the from the three track which really wasn't used as much as a three track but as, as two tracks and then you used one to bounce in a generation away. And by the way, we were playing all, all in all, our songs isn't like recorded today. They were played like performances. Everybody <laughs> played together in the room together, you know? Yeah. And uh, then the following, and, and after Bathing at Baxter's, the third album, the following year, 68, that's when the A track became available. Soon after that, the 16 track, you know? But still, two inch tape. You had to, if you were going to, if, if God forbid you made a mistake, you know, and they had to be fixing that with the tape, you know, you were the dirty guy because the, the razor had to come out and you had to <laughs> splice that, you know. So nowadays, of course, that, that's not necessary. But uh, with that ability to have eight and then 16 tracks, that opened up tracks for experimentation to, to, to do different things on and with, you know. So for me, that was great. It must have been it. so exciting to be part of it. was of very exciting, and that was the place you could do it. You couldn't go home and do that. You know, you didn't have access to to that equipment. You know, am I right in thinking that volunteers? Not was to mention the team of people that had to be on hand to keep <laughs> running. <up. laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, volunteers was one of the the first albums to be recorded on sixteen track. If I if I've read yeah. that rightly, I think. Exactly. And that was a. Um, so I wanted to ask you about. Um, about the studios, because you worked at RCA a lot, and then you moved to the Wally Hyder studio. And well, yeah, we worked down here. And then Wally Hyder, uh, uh, because there was the 
the Grateful Dead were recording every all the bands that were up in San Francisco with that San Francisco scene happening. And then, you know, while I came up with the bright idea, let's put a studio up there. Okay. And so uh, uh, that was down on Hyde Street. And uh, Raleigh was great. And so when he put that studio in, we were the first band to go in and, and, and do the shakedown, so to speak. <laughs> And there's a, there's a great story to go along with that. When it really was up and running, we were happy. We didn't have to fly down to Los Angeles. We didn't have to pay $12 to fly PSA from San Francisco to Los Angeles. <laughs> I still have a ticket. We were outraged. It went up to 1650 a couple of years later. <laughs> and we used to run back and forth in that period of time Say after uh, after Baited Baxter, after that, I think we did we did some running back and forth where where we've taken early, early you know what we call an earlier flight. Sometimes we go down in one day, you know, go down there, go into the studio, jump back on the late flight that would get to you, scoot you in just before two o'clock to back up to San Francisco. Yeah, you know? what's the flight in any time? Case, well, I started that that new uh, building a studio in San Francisco. That was, you know, watershed moment for all of us that, that lived up there. But uh, so we had the first session book for, for Wallace, and I remember there was like the stained glass lamps hanging in there. I mean, it's really set up, you know, like, <laughs> like the, the hippie studio. You know? And all kinds of stuff going on in it, visual stuff. And we set up all of our equipment, and, we, and, and Jack hit the first bass note, and everything, the engineers looked up at the ceiling and shook their head because all that stuff that was put in there by someone who didn't know about what happens in a recording studio, uh, apparently uh, it all rattled. <laughs> <laughs> the first bass note. We all laughed, packed everything up, you know, went back to our homes, and they tore all this stuff out of the studio and it came back in a few days later and started to record there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. One note. <laughs> <laughs> so was it literally just ease that it was in, you know, it was closer to home? It, and well, the, yeah, but I mean, don't forget, I mean, hey, you know, it's five, 400 miles away. Yeah, you know? I mean, so... I mean, you know, I mean, see, San Francisco had never been a recording hub. The, you know, Los Angeles for you know for, forever. New York, Philadelphia, you know, had been Nashville, of course, for all the 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 uh, the, the um, country and western acts uh, coming out of there. But San Francisco hadn't been that. So once they opened up a studio there, then it was, and it drew in people from all of, from all over the Bay Area. Later on, then Berkeley, you know, had Fantasy Studio and and. Uh, uh, and things moved up because the world was changing, and and uh, and people were uh, so many people were living, so many artists were living in the San Francisco area. Yeah, it made plenty of sense. Did uh, anything change sonically for you moving studios? No, I mean you you deal with what you deal with what you have. You know, there's the the big room that we recorded in. Yeah, with that. I mean, I think you could put. In Montevani's 101 strings in. I mean, it was <laughs> it was really interesting because here we had this this basically five piece band sitting in the middle of the studio, and there was like acres on every side, you know, in this big room. And uh, 
uh, you could do full-blown orchestras in there, no sweat. That's what it was used for. So these were much smaller studios, yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, it, was, uh, it worked out just fine. I, I'm interested to go uh, to go back to, to sort of how you started, because you, you were originally a guitarist, is that right? Yeah, I started um, playing guitar at age 12, 1956 in Washington, D.C. And then you, I mean, you, you must have you clearly took to it very quickly and began sort of working, uh, I, I suppose, playing covers in, in what would have been, you know, club bands and things like that. Exactly. Um, I think when there's a, a a picture up here that shows me of, of 14 years old playing with Yorma. He's oh, 17. Wow. And I'm in, uh, um, in 1958. I'm looking at it right there. Uh, you know, we had a little high school band together. You know, I was finishing out junior high school. I was uh, three years younger than Yorma. Uh, and... Uh, we were doing Buddy Holly stuff and Rockabilly stuff, and, and Yorma wasn't finger-picking it at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were singing, and we, we became friends uh, and, 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 and played for a year or so in a little band called The Triumph. And you could find this stuff out. Uh, uh. In any case, we started Washington, D.C., and we, we did that. He, we did that for a year. Um, uh, and I was playing guitar. I, I had a, a, a Telecaster um, that I bought with my newspaper route money. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I sold newspapers and had a lawn cutting business. And, and uh, okay, so. Oh, wow. So I'm playing, uh, I'm playing, that's Yorma. And speaking of the Wollenzak, the Wollenzak recorder's on the floor. This is the little amplifier my dad and I made with a Heathkit amplifier, 8 watts. <laughs> and I'm 14 here, uh, 14 and a half, you are 17. I'm playing a, 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 a brand new uh, Telecaster that I bought uh, for $115. Wow. I wish I had that guitar today. Well, yeah, 50s Telecaster, yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we, we, we started out playing guitar. Um, I started playing guitar because my father had one up in the attic that was, was not functioning. It was a Washburn uh, classical guitar, mm -hmm. just a couple of strings on it. And I started playing around with it when I was uh, I don't know, 11 or something, uh, 12. And it disappeared at Christmas 1956. And uh, oh, before that, and I didn't think anything of it. And of course, you think you do stuff in your household that you know your parents don't know what you're doing. But in any case, come Christmas time, uh, I have two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother, and we went down the stairs to the Christmas tree, and I'm looking at everybody's got presents, and not too much for Jack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's an envelope on the tree, and, I'm, and it says Jack on it. So I open it up, and it says. Dear Jack, this entitles you to 12 music guitar lessons at the local store up the street. Uh, and uh, we, we had your, the washburn strung with steel strings, because uh, we knew I wanted steel strings, I guess. And uh, 
uh, and and it, it was supposed to be ready in time, but it'll be ready next week. So my parents heard me playing and plunking around on it, and luckily very early they were wise enough to just shoot me right into proper instruction right away. Oh, amazing. And uh, so I moved on up from, you know, I, I had uh, – that guitar for a little while, and then I bought an NES-175 Gibson, which was my first electric guitar, uh, a hollow-body F-hole with a single pickup. And then from then, I, uh, in 1958, uh, I got the the Telecaster. And I played around a lot. A lot. I, I started by the time Yorman left the following year to go to college, where he picked up and learned his finger-picking style from Ian Buchanan at Antioch College, and we kept in touch. And I kind of went into the, the the scene in the D.C. area and met other musicians, and Ronnie McDonald was a drummer and singer, and, and we did a lot of work around the D.C. area uh, uh, where I'd played in a variety of different kinds of bands, you know, from... from country and western bands to R&B bands, you know, all, all of the bands tend, the R&B club circuit bands tended to have two or three horns, a piano. You did a lot of Ray Charles stuff. You did a lot of New Orleans stuff. You know, Huey, Piano Smith, and the Clowns. You did, you did, it was a different world. It was like the adult world of clubs, you know. <laughs> and here I was going back into high school every day. And then in the weekends playing, playing, these clubs were, then you only had to be 18 to work the clubs. And I, and the time that Yorm and I played together, I had a, a ID, fake ID made made up, said I was 18, I was 15. But if you look in that picture, I looked 15. <laughs> but in any case, for some reason, I was able to play in all the clubs and, no, and nobody bothered me. Uh, and... Um, there was a, a a big club scene, but that club scene wasn't ori- was not oriented around the bands making original music. That was never encouraged. You did Louis Prima, you did uh, Ray Charles stuff, you did you know adult. It was almost like little Las Vegases, <laughs> but there were many different kinds of genres. There was clubs that 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 really worked country and western. First of all, you got to understand Washington D.C is in the south so it's 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 bracketed by maryland and virginia uh uh and all that appalachian music comes up through virginia but at the same time because of washington dc it was it was uh, an, a rhythm and blues african-american scene hub both for jazz and rhythm and blues uh and even folk music so and blues so the crossroads was just uh, for me that, that wanted to soak up all this different kind of music. It couldn't have been a better environment. But as far as developing it as a musician and developing your own thing and your own style, I had to really go out to California to be let loose with that. But I did run into a couple of players from time to time that said, Jack, you never played it like the record. You always messed the lines around. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I, I guess I guess there you go. But in any case, I played guitar, and 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 the various musicians switched around in various bands, you know, depending who was available and who wasn't. 
good friend of mine, Danny Gatton, who has passed away. He was a wonder kid on, on guitar. He's very well known if you look him up. Uh, uh, he, at age 12, he could just do things on the instrument that were mind-boggling. But he, but he, he played banjo and violin and all and and everything, but, uh, but he was a friend, uh, and he asked me one night, uh, you know, the the summertime came and and the summertime light jobs where you play Wildwood, New Jersey, you'd play, the Circle Line, uh, a ferry boat would go back and forth uh, over the Potomac. Uh, and uh, over to places like Marshall Hall and, and, and uh, places that would have live music in the summertime up and down the shore. Um, and I, I, uh, an opportunity came up for, I, th I don't know, I think it was a four-week gig or something, and his, his bass player, now let me explain something else. In 1960, say, bass, electric bass guitarists were few and far between all the bands had stand-up bases. You know, if you listen to all those records, Bobby Blue playing, Ray Charles, and, and all that, that's all, that's all stand-up bass playing. The first guy to really start using an electric bass guitar well was James Brown in the rhythm and blues world. In the country world, a lot of the rockabilly musicians started using the bass guitar. You'll see that, that the Fender, early Fender basses that looked kind of like a Telecaster bass. They were in a lot of bands, you know, that you saw that was playing. Even though the early recordings were a lot of stand-up bass, that was the go-to bass to take out on the road. Mm -hmm. So Fender developed also their basement amp that had the four tens. That basement amplifier, the late 50s amplifier, was really popular with the steel guitar players, too, because it had a really great sound. I know you saw that amp in all the, the, the country bands. But... Uh, this gig came up, and Danny said, "You know, my my the, uh, Ernie, my bass player is is uh, is sick. Uh, do you know of any any bass players?" And I said, "No, I I, I really don't." Uh, he says, "Why don't you do the gig? It's a good gig. The middle phase, 115 bucks a week. You know, because we're doing five sets a night, six <laughs> nights a week, yeah. 40 on, 20 off. That's the gig. Two shows on Sunday afternoon." And so, you know, it, it, you know, but yes, it was great money. Gasoline was 19 cents a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, you could put a dollar in a tank and go somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, just like the Chuck Berry song. And so uh, I said, I don't know anything about the bass. bass. And he says, listen, the bottom, and, you know, it's, tune like the bottom four strings of the guitar. And, and he says, how hard can it be? It's only got four strings. So that was the joke. You know. So anyway, I did that gig, and I borrowed the other, uh, Ernie's, the uh, other gentleman's uh, uh, bass guitar. Uh, and I fell in, uh, in love with it. I said, you know, this is, this is really something. I, I could make an okay guitarist, but, but uh, I didn't really think of it that way, but looking back on it, I'm, I could make an okay guitarist, but not a, I don't think I'm great. But, but there was something about the sonic world of the bass that I loved. Now, we have to flip a little bit over to the, my love of orchestras and classical music. Being in Washington, D.C., I mean, that's the mecca of cla classical music, that in New York. At the, in the 1960s, the early 60s, Jackie Kennedy... Uh, was was uh, had put 
put forth this uh, musical exchange initiative with other countries. And so there was a lot of really interesting music coming into the Washington, D.C. area and the United States from Russia and Germany and that, that where you would see these great classical musicians, the cultural exchange program she started. And with that, um, you'd see the Kirov Ballet and, and uh, Boshua Ballet and, and folk music of, of from, from Russia and different lands. The first first place I saw the folk folk music ballet with a Russian balalaika band, you know, unbelievable to see eight yeah. bass balalaikas. You see, I have this this balalaika right here. Let's see if I can turn this one up, disrupting everything. <laughs> see that? Oh yeah, very in the cool. Corner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it looks so, like um, we uh, obviously we discussed we were talking about oud before we we started talking yeah. properly, and uh, it looks almost like a bass version of an oud. So, um, so in any case, um, the bass guitar to me was also a cello. I mean, I thought I loved the tone as I as I worked. I got my first bass guitar later on that summer, nineteen sixty. And instead of the precision bass that had been out for a while, like the one you see James Jameson use and, 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 and uh, most of the players of that sunburst sculpted back precision, Fender had just come out that summer with a jazz bass. And I went down to uh, uh, the, the music store. I'll think of it in a second. But in any case, I went down and... Uh, I ordered one. I remember it was really expensive. I think it was $228 or something like that, which was a lot of money for an instrument back then. And so it's, uh, it's double, the, double the Telecaster you bought. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a new instrument. It was interesting because I had two, called the jazz bass, I had two pickups uh, and concentric pots where you could volume tone, volume tone. So you could really mix the combination of tones. I like that manipulation of the tone tones a lot more uh, and then they it was a little easier I don't have huge hands so uh, the nut was a, a little more narrow uh, and the playing uh, uh, w was uh, 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 easier for my hands so once I tr got my hands on one I ordered one uh, and that pretty much it launched me that year into playing the bass and I must admit my my work quota expanded exponentially with <laughs> playing the bass. So for those next few years, I played both in guitar in some bands and, and bass in others. And uh, I would meet up with Yorma from time to time. Uh, a couple of years later, he, he was on a work furlough program and I'd take the train up to uh, New York from D.C. And we go to all the folk clubs and hear Reverend Gary Davis and Sonic Terry and Brown McGee and Gertie's Folk City and all of that, that scene that was happening in the in the New York and Washington in the early folk scene where Dave Van Rock and the Holy Modal Rounders and all of these these basically urban white musicians were listening to old thirties and forties music and jug bands forming, you know, they, like Jerry Garcia was in, and listening to that kind of music. And then out of that grew the originals like like a Bob Dylan it would start to write his own material um, after uh, being so influenced by Woody Guthrie and that, that folk music revival of the early 1960s. 
But at the same time, and I really enjoy that, my older brother, Charles Cassidy, which is how I met Yorma, because they were, they were all a year apart in high school. We'd had these great listening sessions, and we collected records. And, and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to just jump on, a, on a, a bus at 12, 13 years old, go down to the Library of Congress into the music collection, and listen to these recordings from all over the world. Today you call that world music, you know, but, you know, pygmies of the rainforest, you know, and <laughs> the sounds of the, I mean, these were actual records. You, you go in, you take these records out and go into a booth with 70, 78 records and listen to music from all over the world, you know, music from Pakistan and music, you know, just uh, from Africa, and you'd, you'd soak in all this in. Later on was the beginning of a lot of that music being collected for instance, the Harry Smith collection and, uh, and a bunch of others uh, that would put them those collections together onto something new called the Long Playing Album. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, the, all that was happening. All this is happening all, all within about a five-year bracket. You know. And uh, I'd meet Yorma up in New York, and we'd listen to all the folk plays, and Yorma had just started playing, playing learning the the, the Piedmont style with the thumb and two fingers, you know, finger picks, and that and uh, you know influenced by Reverend Gary Davis and and and, uh, and a number of other players, while starting to develop his own sound on the instrument. So, um, a couple of years later, I'm still working in that club scene in in Washington D.C. and listening to a, to a lot of jazz in that early period. I guess what I was going to say also was all that new jazz was starting to come in in early 60s where you had those players like you say John Coltrane and Yusef Latif and uh, uh, Charles Mingus and Eric Dolphy who was uh, Eric Dolphy's a big influence on me and the way he got tone out of, of his that bass clarinet I, I always carried that with me I love it to this day in any case all this music is sort of pouring through. I didn't want to play jazz. I didn't know, but, but it was influenced a lot by it. And when uh, I was talking to Yorma, who had transferred out from Antioch to the West Coast in 62, and, and he was teaching music, he's, he'd we were talking together one night through a mutual friend, a banjo player, and I, and I said, what are you doing out there? And he said, well, I've joined a band, a, a folk rock band. I said, what, you the purest? Uh, uh, and uh, he, he says, yeah, it's really cool. He said, but uh, but we could we need a bass player. And because and, and, I just told him, yeah. He said, what are you doing there? I said, yeah, doing the usual. Staying in school, keeping out of the Army. Because don't forget, if you were 18, you were drafted to, to Vietnam then. Mm. It's 1965. So 64, I guess, when I was 65 when I was talking to him. And he was 65. And this draft had started to heat up. So you had to maintain, you'd go back, uh, you know, I took a year off from after high school and played around all over, went down to Florida and played in a bunch of clubs and all around, and then uh, went back into college, or into college. But in any case, um, I said, yeah, I'm playing guitar and bass, and he says, you're playing a bass guitar? I said, yeah. He said, well, we, let me call you back. So he calls me back, says, listen, why don't you come out to San Francisco, there's a great music scene going on out here, and uh, and 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 uh, uh, and try out for this band, you know. 
And so he brought me, he had me, they plane ticket, went out, took my first plane flight, went out to San Francisco. The, a couple of weeks before I went there, I was playing at a club for two weeks solid, I think, and we left the instruments in the club at night, and the, it got stolen. The club was broken into my, my Fender 60s jazz bass. First year that it came out was stolen. I wish I had that bass today. <laughs> in any case, I arrived out there with no bass and borrowed the other guy's bass player, Bob Hart, I think. And in um, any case, we did our first gig. We rehearsed for, for a while, and we did a first gig uh, uh, at Harmon Gymnasium, I think October 16th, something like that. And then they, they said, you're on. The only thing is I had a mustache, and, they, and Paul wouldn't me shave the mustache. You know? <laughs> so I said, I don't, I don't know. You know, I look like some, some geek out of, you know, I wasn't cool looking. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I told him, uh, okay, I'll meet you halfway, and I came into the next rehearsal with half the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I wasn't about to be told what to do, you know. But anyway, yeah. it, all, it all worked out. <laughs> There we go, the first part of my conversation with Jack Cassidy, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that. So that just leaves me to say that if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that by buying a mug. Uh, they are very cool enamel mugs that will not break um, if you drop them, because they're made of metal, I think, is enamel, enameled metal. Anyway, go to the website, allyouneedisdrums.com, and click on shop, and you'll be able to purchase one there. And um, thank you to everybody who's bought one already. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, that just leaves me also <laughs> get to say uh, a huge thank you to my friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music and my good friend David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies every week now. Uh, and I will see you in one week's time. Have a lovely seven days. Goodbye. <laughs>